Hello there, and welcome to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. My name is Richard Frankowitz, and I'm the Youth Director here at Sardis Fellowship Baptist Church. Today, Pastor Rod Heppel continues in our series in the book of John, looking at what it means to be a true follower of Jesus. Thanks for listening, and enjoy! with us last week, you know that we started back into the second half of John's gospel. We did the first half back in the, in the fall, and now we're from chapter 12 through to the end of the book uh, between now and Easter. We looked at the irony of the cross last week, which in John's gospel, he refers to the death of Jesus Christ as his moment of glory. And that's the irony, right? Uh, we hardly think of it that way because we wouldn't think <clears throat> if someone said my moment in glory, it wouldn't look like the cross, right? But in that act of humility, in that act of suffering, in the torture and the death, was the greatest victory of all time. And for that reason, it is glory. Through the victory on the cross, Jesus conquered sin, he conquered death, he conquered Satan himself, he was exalted to the highest place, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And therefore, he is the one who can give us eternal life. So it's for that reason that John reflects on the cross, and even Jesus' own words, that he refers to the cross as his glorification. In our study in the second half of John's gospel, we're going to realize it's actually covering just the last week of Jesus' life. So John has committed nine chapters, ten chapters, to the last week of his life, uh, and and 11 chapters to the, the first, you know, 33 years of his life, or however long he lived. And so I think it's important to note that, because if he's going to spend that much time on, on Jesus' last week, we want to kind of slow down. Uh, We kind of want to pay attention and see what it is here that John is capturing that is so important that we also want to learn ourselves. So in this final week, at least the final week before the cross, before it arrives, Jesus says this. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So that's kind of a, a key phrase that he's trying to say, everything in my life, everything in the ministry up until this point, all of my teaching, all of the miracles and the signs, you've seen me do. All of that has built up to this moment, and it's a final moment of testing. There is for sure an intensity about this, because as Jesus gets closer to the hour, we realize that he has to be that much more determined to go through with the plan, to carry out the will of the Father. In fact, he says in Luke 9.51, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, which would only happen after the cross, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Some versions say he set his face towards Jerusalem. Why the word resolutely? Resolutely means determined. It means unwavering. Well, why was he unwavering? Why was he determined to set out for Jerusalem? Why did he have to be determined? Well, it's because of this. He didn't want to die. He resolutely heads towards Jerusalem because it's for this very hour that he has come. The whole reason why he's come to earth is for this moment, but it's not an easy moment. Do you marvel at Jesus? I do. I mean, do you seriously think of what it would have been like for him in that moment to say, okay, it's time? I mean, I don't know that I would have headed for Jerusalem. I think I would have pulled a Jonah, right? Catch a boat and go to Tarshish. And I'm not lisping when I say Tarshish. I know I lisp. Everyone, I know. But it's an actual word. It's a city. Tarshish. There you go. But you know, the truth is, you would have probably pulled a Jonah as well if you knew what was awaiting you in Jerusalem 
as it did for Jesus. Jesus resolutely sets his face towards Jerusalem means that he's building up his courage. As we would say, he takes a deep breath and he puts his mind to it. Now, we know this feeling when we have to do something that we don't want to do or have to go through something that we don't want to go through. Um, many of you have great courage. I've heard of your stories of various treatments and procedures that you've faced. And when you go through that, you know what it takes. You know that you have to go through it. And so you take a deep breath and you resolutely set out to do what you know you need to do. Now, of course, for us, that's just a taste of what Jesus himself would have to go through now that his time had come. That he would make his way to Jerusalem and be handed over to evil men. Just think about that. Handed over to evil men whose very craft was to torture people within a breath of their life. Jesus digs deep and he's determined to go to Jerusalem. So up until this point in John's gospel, Jesus and the disciples have been on the other side of the shore or of the uh, river of Jordan uh, to the east of Jerusalem about 65 miles away, or 65 kilometers. That's a pretty safe distance from the authorities in Jerusalem finding out who he is or where he is, up until chapter 11 and 12. So in chapter 12, we're going to see that he progresses away from that safety zone to the area of Judea, to a town called Bethany, which is located only three kilometers from the city of Jerusalem. So he's moved from a safe place to a not-so-safe place. And we're going to look at three stories in John 12, and each story shows us a marker point of this geographical movement to Bethany, to the outskirts of Jerusalem, to the temple in the center of Jerusalem. And so we're going to look at three stories today, and I want you to note something. I want you to note that people are often saying things and doing things that have a meaning that they don't even really know. It's a meaning that Jesus knows, but they do not. So we're going to look at these three stories. Mary anoints Jesus' feet with perfume the triumphal entry, and then Greek-speaking people who want to meet Jesus. In our first story, Mary anoints Jesus' feet with perfume, and Jesus interprets it as she's doing this to prepare me for my burial. Now, this takes place in Bethany, as I said, and it's about three kilometers from Jerusalem. So, um, you know, still outside of Jerusalem. It's a, a distance I, I googled, what's three kilometers from our church? Um, Superstore. It's pretty close to three kilometers from here. So Jesus has come from 65 kilometers away, say Langley. He's moved to Bethany, say Chilliwack, and he's only three kilometers away from kind of that central point in the city of Jerusalem, which would geographically for us be Superstore. The second story is the triumphal entry, which we call Palm Sunday, right? You all know that. It's the week before we celebrate Easter, and we have got the palm branches, often the kids. Jesus comes riding in on a donkey to the city. People are shouting, Hosanna. Jesus comes into Jerusalem, it says, in our second story. And in the third one, the Greek-speaking people approach him in Jerusalem at the temple. So he's moved from beyond the Jordan to Bethany to the outskirts of the city into the center of the city. He's in the middle of that Jewish center of religious activity for the Passover. And if you think about it, he's now moved from the parking lot of Superstore into the store. And you can't hide very long when you're in the center of Jerusalem, in the center of this religious feast. Someone is going to say, he's in aisle four. I know it's a really terrible illustration using Superstore. I don't even know why other than the fact I googled it and that's what was about three kilometers from here. But if you are in Superstore this week, I hope that you're thinking about this message and about Jesus. I hope you're not thinking, why would Jesus ever shop at Superstore? That's not the point of this. 
three stories we're going to look at, each one moving Jesus closer to his reality of death. And let's look at these stories. So the first one is John 12, 1 to 10. Six days before the Passover, which would be Saturday, if you go to the Passover and count back, it would put them on a Saturday. Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray Jesus, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Poor Lazarus, eh? What did he do? I was dead. Somebody woke me up. And now they want to kill me too. In this first story, Jesus is with Lazarus, and it seems like it's a dinner in honor of the fact that he's raised him from the dead recently. We don't know exactly how long, but it seems like within a period of about a week. It's fresh enough in people's minds that they're still coming to see him. They want to see what they've heard, and they want to marvel at this. It's called a sign in John's gospel, a sign to the Jewish people who are looking for that. But the heart of the story is on this part about Mary. Mary was Lazarus' sister, right? And uh, she does this extravagant thing, and we know it's extravagant because John points that out in these details, right? He, he, he has the details of the fact that it's pure nard, that it's a pint, about half a liter, and that it's expensive perfume. Some versions that you might have say very expensive perfume, and it's defined for us there, a year's wages. Well, yeah, that's a lot of, perf- that's a lot of money in a small little container, right? This act of extravagance seems like it's a wasteful act because it could have been sold for a lot of money and taken the money and then used it to help meet the needs of the poor. Now, to this point, we would kind of go, actually, you know, that kind of sounds legitimate, right? I mean, without knowing the motive of Judas's heart here, we might actually be inclined to think something similarly. But of course, John helps us out and says that, you know, he wasn't actually too concerned about the poor. He was more concerned about being able to take some of that money and line his own pocket, so to speak. There's two reasons uh, why, this, why Jesus says what he says. One is that, first of all, no one understands exactly what's going on except him, right? And the second one is that John lets us know that the motive is not pure. So it's not that Jesus is being insensitive to the poor and the needs that are there. It's that those needs are there. And if you'd like to help, you can. And you can help any time. And Judas, why haven't you been helping? Jesus has a different mindset on the whole matter. You know, his time has come you got to understand what's going on here. The very God of all creation has entered into this creation for this very moment, and he knows what he's about to face. Now, in Mary pouring this perfume on his feet, she doesn't know 
I don't think she knows that she's doing the burial thing that Jesus references, and I don't think anyone else there knows. In fact, what do you think people make of Jesus' comment? I'll tell you what I think they make. Nothing. I don't think they have a clue what he means when he's saying, this was meant for my burial. I don't think anyone clues into what Jesus has in mind because that's so often the case is that he's saying things and they don't really understand it. There's no category for it. There's multiple illustrations of the disciples talking about what they think it was that Jesus said and they were wrong. So I don't think they really understand. And even in the Gospels, it tells us not until the resurrection did they understand these things. So story number one, bye. Bye, buddy. Thanks for joining us. Everyone else wants to go too, but they can't. <laughs> I think the thing here, this first story is this key word about his death, burial. What does that mean? What does he have in mind? Uh, we'll move to our second story, which happens the next day, Sunday. The great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna, which means save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. That's who they're wanting. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written <clears throat> about him and that these things had been done to him. John, the author, would be one of those people who's realizing that, right? You follow that. He's a disciple of Jesus, and he's written this a number of years later. He's had time to reflect on it, and he's saying of himself, we did not realize at the time, but afterwards we understood, and now he's written about it. Now the crowd was, that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to, to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world is going after him. They are not as excited about this sign of the resurrection of Lazarus as what everyone else is. So the word's getting out about Jesus. Jesus has moved to the neighboring city of Jerusalem called Bethany, just a little town on the hillside. He's getting closer. Those who celebrated the resurrection of Lazarus, uh, Lazarus had been sharing it with people, and people had been sharing it with others. Have you heard? Have you heard? Have you heard? And that's why you have this idea of these crowds that are coming to see because they are expectant of something. And now Jesus is coming, it says, into. Since the people went out to meet him as Jesus was coming to the city. So picture this. They're in Jerusalem. They're catching wind. The one who's lays Lazarus, he's been in Bethany. Now he's coming to the city. They grab their palm branches. They head out there. All of this imagery is really clear of a military victory, of a king who's coming into the city. If a king went out in battle, he would come back riding on a horse, victorious, and the people would go out with their palm branches, which were symbols of nationalism and military might, and they would wave them as their king came back, and they would usher him into the city. And so they go out because they're expectant of their king of Israel. This must be him. And they're going to bring their palm branches, and, uh, and they want this Messiah this king to throw off the Roman oppressors and restore the prominence they once had when King David and Solomon were in power. Is this the time? The one who would come and restore the throne of David. 
And so they go out there and they're wanting Jesus to be that expected Messiah, that king who would overthrow. They're hoping and they're wondering and they're waving these palm branches and they're shouting the word Hosanna, which at that time was not an expression of praise. It is for us. We sing about it. We use the word Hosanna. But for them, it was a literal word which meant save us. So you get that. Here he comes. He's coming into the city. Got the palm branches. This is the moment. Here's our Messiah. He's going to rescue us. We call this the triumphal entry, but you know it didn't last very long. Pretty soon the people disband. They missed a lot too. They didn't catch the fact that he wasn't riding on a horse. He was riding on a donkey. They missed the symbolism of this. When a king came riding on a donkey, it was a symbol of peace. If he came riding on a horse, it was a symbol of war. John highlights this because he quotes the prophecy, Zechariah 9.9, and he doesn't quote 10, but I put it here for us to reflect on. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. That's Jerusalem. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. Okay, they got that part. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. But look at the second part. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim. That's one of the tribes in Jerusalem. And the war horses from Jerusalem. And the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Are you capturing this picture? So they have one idea in mind. Their expectation is this king who's going to rescue them. He'll be a military leader. One problem. That's not what it is about at all. In fact, the victory that Jesus has in mind is far greater than just a victory for the people of Israel. It's a victory that will be for all people, that will go from sea to sea, from river to river. It will never end. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He's the one who would give his life in order that we might have peace with God. That's what this is all about. It's a way greater victory than the one they have in mind, but they can't see it for the thing right in front of them. The second story is about a different kind of king. The third story, it's a long passage, stick with me. It's about these Greeks who come to see Jesus. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Beth, uh, Bethida, Bethesda. Mm, you can work on that while I just carry on. In Galilee, with a request, Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on the world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that, Moses, that Messiah, 
will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. While you have the light, walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. I read that long text for this purpose. He hides himself. He leaves the temple. One of the scholars said the holy of holies has left the temple for the last time. That's a powerful thought if you know the identity of Jesus Christ. This concludes the movement of Jesus from Bethany to the outskirts of Jerusalem into the temple area. These Greeks are coming to Philip because Philip is a Greek-sounding name. He's probably the most approachable for them. Sir, they say to him, we want to see Jesus. Well, what is it that you want to see Jesus for? I think the request is honest. I think their intentions are good. I think that they have seen things and heard things about Jesus just like everyone else in the city. And they are not Jewish people. They are Greek-speaking. And so they've heard something about the fact that Jesus is for the nations. And they want to meet Jesus. There's some element of sympathy in their heart towards Christ. But in their desire to see Jesus, it definitely is not what they expected to hear from Jesus. Jesus says, Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus is referring to himself here. I don't know if everyone there caught that. They might have missed it. We could miss it. I would say all my growing up years as a kid, I read that passage and I didn't understand that Jesus was referring to himself. But he is that kernel of wheat that would die and he's also the one who would be lifted up on the cross, right? He uses these imageries and analogies to try to help people understand what's about to happen, but they don't understand. Not until after it happens does it make sense. The kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies. It's only through the death that there comes life. You know, I grew up on a potato farm. Um, great heritage, loved it. But sometimes that harvester at the end of the row would pick up a little too soon the blade and it would miss a section of potatoes that were still buried in the mounds. And then my uncle or my dad would make us get five-gallon pails and go down there and pick up the potatoes. And so you'd go into the hill and you would pull out all those potatoes. And I was always amazed how many potatoes were on one vine. You know, on average it's like 10, 12, 14, somewhere in there. But some varieties, you can get up to 30 potatoes on a vine. And I remember pulling that out and going, man, there's a lot of potatoes and there's only one vine. And then you would find that one potato that was what we call the seed potato. It was the one potato back in the fall that we had stored in boxes, kept it cool all winter. And then when we came into the early spring and we went out and we cultivated the land and rototilled it, we planted those potatoes that we had stored all year long. And that one potato went into the ground. And now I'm pulling out the harvest and I'm pulling out all of the product and there's that one dead potato. It's just a shell. There's nothing on the inside anymore. It's gone. And Jesus says, unless the kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it doesn't produce life. It doesn't produce more seeds. And he's referring to himself. He is the one who says to these Greek people, I'm going to die. But in my death, it's going to be the greatest victory. I'm going to conquer sin. I'm going to conquer death. I'm going to conquer your greatest fears. I'm going to conquer what you fear in this reality that takes care of the reality to come. And it, it's going to happen through the cross. 
But it comes at a cost, anyone who says, yes, I, I believe in you and I want to follow you. Verse 25 and 26 says, anyone who loves their life will lose it. Well, anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What he's saying there is that Jesus can't be second place in your life. He has to be first place. Why? Well, it's kind of simple math. It's his life for yours. And that's worth it. That's a good deal. He gave his life on the cross and died that you might live. And now we live our life for him. That's the great exchange. No one expected to hear this answer from Jesus. Jesus goes on to say, listen, man, don't walk in darkness. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. John started his gospel at the very beginning. And he said that this light has come into the world and that we could become children of God to those who believe in Jesus and have received him. They become children of God. He comes back to it here and he says, listen, people, listen, the light is amongst you. Believe while you have the light. Darkness is coming. And you know, the message hasn't changed for each and every one of us. Each and every one of us walk in this world, and it's a dark world. You know it firsthand. Every single one of us, if we went around this room and we told our stories and what's going on in our lives right now, there is darkness in this world, and we know it. And what Jesus is saying is, I offer you something. I am the light of the world. Trust, believe so that you might have this light as well. And as Tim said at the very beginning about the Beatitudes and the blessings that we were reading, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of hardship, there is blessing. And there is an opportunity to know God in the middle of your suffering, in the middle of your struggles. He is the one who is the light. So the last story tells us that the Lord of all gave his life that we might be saved. And that's what God offers us. So there's some things I want us to ponder. I've been a follower of Jesus Christ for many, many years, and I'm pondering more deeply what it means to be a follower, to be a Christian, to be a disciple. I'm pondering things like the king we are following is a different kind of king, and that the kingdom, his kingdom, is a different kind of kingdom, and that he calls his subjects or his followers to be different kind of people. Don't let that escape us too quickly. We are too quick to let ourselves off the hook of what it means to follow Jesus. And as I think about the stories that we've looked at, I'm asking myself questions like this, reflective questions. Am I like Mary? Do I have a heart full of gratitude and devotion who doesn't care what others might think about this extravagant act of worship? Do I love Jesus like that? Or do I care too much about what other people think about me? Am I like the crowds who shouted, Hosanna, when things were going well, when they thought it was a good story, and crucify them when they were disappointed? Am I like the Greeks who are eagerly desiring to know Jesus and what makes him tick? Or am I like this verse that says, anyone who chooses to come after me, the one who chooses to serve me must follow me? Wow. I've got to follow Jesus. I don't know what that exactly looks like. I don't know what's around the corner of my life. And Jesus doesn't tell me ahead of time. But he says, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to serve me, you're going to follow me. And that's the relationship he wants with us. You know, each week we have life groups in our church that meet. And at the life groups, a number of them take the questions that Pastor Tim formulates out of our sermons, and then they discuss them. And so Tim puts together the discussion questions, and the, the facilitator will then um, either ask them or various people in the group ask the questions, and the group discusses the sermon. And this is our attempt to try to understand it more deeply, to own it for ourselves, and to grow in our faith. And if you're not a part of a life group, we encourage you to go on our website and fill out that little form. We're doing our best to try to get these started, but I've 
expressed this before and I'll express it again. We need people who are going to be bold enough to say, yes, I will facilitate. Uh, we have host homes, we have people who want to be participants, but we need people who say, yeah, I'll ask those questions. I'll be the little ringleader that pulls us together. If you're that person, would you please speak with Pastor Tim? And today for all of us as we go from here, I want us to think about this question this week. Ask yourself this. If Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem to go to the cross for you, how might you live your life in light of that truth? Let's pray. Father God, you are the one who knows us intimately. You are the one who knows everything about our lives and how we're made. I don't know every person here and I don't know what's going on in their life. And yet you put out a call through Jesus that each and every person would come to the one who offers light and life. And I pray that we would trust you. And I pray that in trusting you, we would look at this question here today and we would choose to live our lives in such a way that's in keeping with what we know about you. Help us to do that. We know we can't do that in our own strength, but we know that you promised the Holy Spirit would be our helper to do that. And we claim that power in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand for a moment? And uh, I just want to say God bless you and go with his peace as we live out our faith in this world. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please check out sardisfellowship.com. Have a great day and God bless.